The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. My topic this morning is human responsibility. So please follow along as we're going to look at a lot of scriptures, and I'm going to be making a lot of points of application. And then after, if anyone has any questions, feel free to ask Caleb. (laughs) Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is creator. Amen? And as the creator, God has the right, he has the absolute authority to acquire whatever he wants from what he created. This is foundational. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. See, God has a purpose for everything he has created, and he has absolute authority to acquire certain things from that which he has created, specifically from us, his image bearers. From men and women, creatures that were created in God's own image. We heard it before, Genesis 1.27. And so that is what we, Lord willing, will examine in this section. What is human responsibility toward God? Or more likely, what does God require of us? In a verse, and speaking to Old Testament Israel, who due to their failure to keep God's covenant, would soon be removed, evicted, kicked out of the promised land, taken captive by foreign nations. It's to these people that the Lord says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, these things are God's requirements for all mankind. He says, O man, this is what the Lord requires of you. So this morning, Lord willing, we will expand on these things. And we'll try to understand the things that God requires and how we are able or unable to respond. The first thing we're going to look at is that God requires obedience. God requires obedience. Genesis 2, 15 to 17 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God commands Israel. God commands obedience. And in Deuteronomy 11, 1, he says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And if you go down to verse 13, he adds, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, you will be blessed. He adds things that he will bless them with. If you continue on in the chapter, you'll see he adds the curses for those who will not obey him in Israel. And as I've said before, the Lord was addressing in this text, national Israel. These commands were for Israel. The blessings promised were for Israel. The curses threatened were for Israel. Now, surely, God did not expect or require obedience from non-Jews, right? Only Israel, correct? 
Well, consider Leviticus 18.25 where he says, Do not make for yourselves unclean by any of these things. There was a list of sins prior to this verse. For by all these things, the nations that I'm driving out before you have become unclean. So that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. From the text, it appears that the previous inhabitants of the promised land, what they did, namely their sinful practices, people without God's law, their lack of obedience was counted against them and they were punished for it. That's what the text says. Don't be like them because what they did caused me to punish them and kick them out of the land. So does God require obedience from every man, woman, and child? Yes, you bet he does. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.23. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In light of that, did you ever wonder why the God of Israel sent Jonah to Assyria? Yes, to pronounce judgment on them, but also to call them or to cause them to what? To repent. Gentiles, pagans, those outside the covenant he made with Israel. He actually sent someone there to warn them. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? That's Paul's question in Romans 3.29. And what does he say? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, God is also their creator and he requires obedience from them as well. Paul puts it this way in Romans 2.14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. God requires obedience from everyone. But what about us? What about those of us today who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who actually call him Lord? Well, Jesus asked this question in Luke 6.46, and he says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not obey me? Yes, Jesus requires obedience. We understand that God requires obedience from Israel, from pagans, non-Jews, And also from Christians, God requires obedience. We also understand from the text that God requires holiness. Look at what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Obviously, that's directed toward Christians. But what about Old Testament Israel? Leviticus 19.2 says this, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. What a chilling command. Holiness, set apart from sin, set apart to God. Totally and heartily devoted to God. Now, Yahweh throughout the Old Testament and throughout history in general made clear that he alone is God. Amen? He created all things. He was not one of the many man-made gods of the various territories, the gods of wood and stone, the figments of sinful man's imagination. He was not capricious. He didn't require human sacrifice. In fact, he forbade it of his people. By this, he was revealing his holiness and uniqueness, not only to the Jews, 
but to the pagan nations as well, punishing them along the way for what? For their idolatry. So by extension, showing them the futility of their idol worship and their need to be separated from their gods and holy unto the one true and living God, Jehovah. Psalm 96.5 puts it this way. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. He's above all things. Now, specifically, Israel, the nation of Israel, was to be holy unto Jehovah and to have no other gods before him. That's the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3. Then in Jesus' day, during his earthly ministry, someone asked him which was the greatest commandment. And what did Jesus reply? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. All of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. And what is this? This is complete and active devotion to the one true and living God. That's holiness. Anything less than this brought curses, calamities, death, and damnation. Just read through the Old Testament and see the outcome of going after and serving other gods, or actually trying to worship other gods alongside Yahweh. Jew and pagan alike. Remember what happened to the prophets of Baal? Of Baal? Surely they didn't know better. But surely they did know better. As God is utterly holy unto himself, we too must be holy unto him. God requires obedience and God requires holiness from all people. So we understand this and we add one more. God also requires humility. Humility. At the verse I read at the outset, Micah 6.8, the end of the verse says, what should man do? Walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Ladies and gentlemen, humility, our humility is extremely, extremely important to the Lord. We've all committed 1 Peter 5, 5, either intentionally or unintentionally to memory. It starts like this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Exactly. But as we heard already from Caleb and from Jim, In 21st century America, pride is absolutely necessary in order to survive, right? That's what we're taught. Higher self-esteem is what we're told our children need in order to succeed in life. Don't criticize. Just tell them everything they do is great. Look around. Pride in our country. Pride in our nationality. Pride in our New York sports teams. Heidi bleeds orange and blue. We'll get them next year. We won't. It's not going to happen. Then our friends over in the Bronx, you want to see pride? Yeah, well, what do do they say? And I'm kidding, sort of, when they lose. How many rings we got? How many rings we got? How many rings we got? There's another team in New York? I'm kidding. But at the root of all these things, pride is the idea that we can set anything our minds to without any help. And we don't need the Lord to help us. But as you know already, by your laughter, this is a lie straight from the pit of hell. It's a trap, and you know that pride was Satan's sin. Pride also was Adam's sin, and pride is at the root of all of our sins. 
Thinking more highly about ourselves than we ought to think is what Paul warns about in Romans 12, 13. I put forward that all other sins, lust, anger, bitterness, gluttony, and laziness all stem from being proud and full of selfishness. I want what I want because I deserve what I want. And don't get in my way. But God requires man to know that man is only a creature, a created thing, finite. As opposed to God who is creator, uncreated, and infinite. Psalm 86.10 puts it this way, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You are the Lord, you alone You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven, that is the angels, worship you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the God with whom we have to do this morning. As for us mere creatures, here's how the word of God instructs us how to humbly relate to each other. First, we have in the Old Testament, Proverbs 25, 6 to 7, and it reads like this. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus puts the same idea this way. In Luke 14, 8 to 11, he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." It's easy to remember. It's hard to do. So Proverbs 25, we're for the Israelites. We know that. Luke 14 addresses Christians, especially sitting here today. And what do we need to do? We need to be humble because God requires humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. James 4.10. But again, I ask this question. Does God require humility from the unbeliever as well? Does he require humility from the pagan, from the atheist? Just ask King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4.37, the king of Babylon says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And you all know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in their world at that time. Made to be like an animal. Why? Because he was prideful. Was he a Jew? God requires humility. And as our creator, again, the Lord has the absolute authority. We have to remember, he has the absolute authority to require these things from his creation. To require obedience, holiness, and humility. And he has required these things from us, his image bearers. Even a casual reading of the scriptures and a passing glance at current events or even a glimpse at our own reflection in the mirror, as Jim said, tells us we have a problem. We have a big problem. 
And that problem is our sinful condition, our fallen nature. We're all children of Adam. We learned that today, if we didn't know that before. Regardless of our race, of our, race, of our nationality, of our sex, or of our religion, we're all children of Adam. We cannot be obedient. We cannot be holy. We cannot be humble before God. All men and women are in a state of what's called total depravity. Total depravity. Those of you familiar with Calvinism know this is the first of the five points of Calvinism. T, total depravity. It's also known as total inability or radical depravity. Now, earlier when we read in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we know that God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree. And he gave him the warning, what will happen? You shall surely die. Well, they ate. Did they die? They died, yes, spiritually. Physically, not immediately, but death came into the world. So about 800 or so years later, they died. But spiritually, they died right then and there. And as we trace human history, there's not time this morning to do that. But even starting in Genesis 2 and on to 3, we see man's fallen state and we see sin take root and get passed down from generation to generation to generation. Genesis 4, we have the first murder. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord looks down and exclaims this, the wickedness of man is great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil Continually. Then comes the flood. So he starts over with Noah and he gets drunk and his son sins against him. And the curses fly. Genesis 12 to 18, we have Abraham, a man of faith. He trusts God and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? She's my sister. Let's lie. Let's get caught in this lie again. The same sin twice. You promised me an heir? How about Ishmael? Make Ishmael the heir. Again, this same person, by God's grace, put his son Isaac on the altar to sacrifice him, showing his faith. Yet, he didn't have faith enough and said, let let Ishmael be the heir. Then we have righteous Lot. Righteous Lot. Let's move to Sin City. Let's live in Sodom. I got a good idea. Let's get drunk and let's bear children with my daughter. We'll have kids and grandkids at the same time. Sin, sin, sin. Then later in Genesis, we have Jacob, whose name means deceiver. What a rotten guy. Look at Jacob's life. Look at his life. Then we have Joseph. Poor Joseph that was sold into slavery. Why did his brothers hate him? Because he was so prideful. You're all going to bow down to me. I had a dream. Even my father and mother will bow down to me. Joseph's brothers were jealous. They sold him to slavery. Sin, sin, sin. Okay, here comes Moses. They come out of Egypt. Now we get God's law, the Ten Commandments. And as I'm bringing it down, oh, there's the golden calf. Then we have Aaron's sons and the strange fire of Nadab and Bihu, struck dead by God. Okay, now we have the nation of Israel. Let's go into the promised land. Wait, we can't make it in there. We don't believe. So God makes them wander for 40 years around the wilderness. Then we come to the judges. Let's send people to save Israel. No, give us a king like other nations. God says, I am your king. We want a regular king. God says good kings and bad kings. The best king, King David, the apple of God's eye, lust, adultery, murder, and the pride in taking that census. Okay, let's send Israel the prophets. You know where I'm going with this. Let's ignore them. Let's kill them. 
Rightly, the Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And then the New Testament. We have Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, the experts of God's law, rejecting the Messiah, crucifying him. Then we have Peter, who is restored after denying Christ, preaching, and 3,000 are saved. Then in Antioch, he won't sit with Gentiles, symbolically putting the dividing wall back up between Jew and Gentile. So Paul accused them to his face. And speaking of Paul, he sums it up in this way. Back from Genesis 3 all the way to today, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. And then he says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's total depravity, ladies and gentlemen. Not every man is a Hitler, but for the grace of God, every man could be. Every man could be, if it's not for God's restraining grace on our sinfulness. So in total depravity, every facet of a person is affected, their wants, their desires, and their choices. We all know Isaiah 64, 6, where it says, our best deeds are nothing but filthy rags before holy God. Literally, our righteousnesses, Our best deeds are nothing but filthy rags and not the nice microfiber cloth you clean your huge TV with. Literally, it's a woman's monthly cloth. That's what's being said there. And now I'm going to take that and I'm going to present it to God. This is what I have for you. That's total depravity. No, ladies and gentlemen, the one true and living God requires obedience, holiness, and humility. But we're unable to be obedient, to be holy, and to be humble. So what happens? So God the Father sends God the Son to be these things for us in our place. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, perfect in all his ways, came to live and die for this sinful people. Amen? We need to believe this, trust in him, repent of our sin, and place our faith in Jesus Christ. You know that. You know that. But we can't do that. We can't do that. We're totally depraved. We're unable even to believe in the Savior that was sent to us. If we can't be humble with one another, what makes you think that you can truly be repentant of your sin on your own and trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your souls? Let's look to the scriptures about this. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born from above... Unless one is regenerated, they cannot understand or perceive the truth of the gospel, let alone believe in it. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able, not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We're spiritually dead. We're not able. Total inability. The natural man left to himself is not able to be obedient, to be holy, to be humble, or to believe the gospel. 
Jesus' words in John 6.44 say this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the Lord Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does God, our creator, require of us? Obedience, humility, and holiness. Are we able to respond in faith? No. Why? Because total depravity. But are we still responsible if we can't? Consider this command from Isaiah 55, 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. What does Romans 3.11 say? No one seeks after God. The command, the responsibility, the inability. How about this? We know these words. Jesus says this in Matthew 11.28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. What did we just read in John 6.44? No man can come to me. We're totally unable. We're completely responsible, but we're totally unable. But that's not fair, right? That's not fair. If no one can resist God's will, how can he still blame us? Well, what does Paul say in Romans 9.20? Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? For what is molded, can what is molded or made say to the molder or the maker, why have you made me like this? We have no right to question that. So if that were it, if my time were done... There's no hope. There's no hope. We're unable to keep his requirements. We know that. Just by looking at your own life, you can't do it. So he sent his son to keep them for us. He did. And then we're told to believe in him, and then we're saved. But we cannot believe in him. Who then can be saved? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Finally, that verse in its context. Right? All things are possible. I'm going to bench press 500 pounds. You know, to be honest, it's easier for me naturally to do that than to, than to believe on my own, to be honest. It'd be more reasonable for me to lift that weight on my own than to be able to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But yes, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. How is this possible? Through the beauty of unconditional election. See, God enables his elect people to respond in faith and repentance. It's the beauty of unconditional election. It's unconditional in that we're unable to keep any conditions placed on us. We're totally depraved. So in his grace and mercy, God sovereignly elects a certain people out of the multitude of sinful children of Adam. Before the foundation of the world, before time began, he sends his son to live, to die, to pay for their sins, purchasing them, redeeming them, drawing them in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, granting them the gift of repentance and keeping them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's unconditional election. And yes, even the Old Testament saints, in a veiled way, put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Note how the writer of the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 11.26. He says of Moses, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And ladies and gentlemen, know that God's choosing was not based on him looking down the tunnel of time. It's not based on any goodness in us or any good works we will do. No, his election is based solely on the counsel of his own will. In other words, it's because he wanted to, period. 
This is unbelievably gracious on the part of God. And in fact, opponents of this doctrine are left with no other choice than giving a Christian a reason to boast before God. Because if a man can believe the gospel on his own without God's enablement, the deciding factor is left in the power of man. And then if we have two people, one believing in Christ and one rejecting Christ, if we don't believe this, then the believing man must attribute his faith to something within himself. Maybe he was smarter. Maybe he decided to go to church when the other person decided not to. Maybe he was more tender-hearted or more interested in spiritual things. These are all reasons to boast. No, Paul puts it clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Both salvation and faith are not your own doing. The faith which facilitates salvation is the gift of God. Philippians 1.29 says that belief or faith has been granted to us along with suffering, which we don't want to talk about. But it's been granted to you to believe. That's been granted to you. Salvation is all of God from beginning to end. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, our total depravity, it begs for unconditional election on God's part. There could never be anything better in the elect that God foresaw. Consider the words of Romans 9, 10 to 13, when Paul writes this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why did God love Jacob, the deceiver? Was it any good in him? Not according to Romans 9 and the entire story of Jacob's life. Why did God love Israel? Because they were good, righteous people? No, we've already briefly surveyed the Old Testament. Why did God choose them? Because he loved them. Because he foreknew them. Now, time doesn't permit to go into all the meanings of new or foreknew, but I have a question for you to think about. In your knowledge of the Bible, isn't it true that God knows everything? Doesn't God know everyone? In one sense, of course. But the word know often connotes more than knowing things about someone in the scriptures. One verse will take care of that. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife Eve. You know what that means. He didn't say, oh, nice to meet you. What's your favorite color? You know what to know someone means in the Bible. Therefore, the word foreknew, especially in Romans 8, means to love before, to already love, to love before. Another example, why would Jesus, who knew all men, John 2, 24, he knows all men. Why would he exclaim in his parable, depart from me, I never knew you in Matthew chapter 7. Knew must have a deeper meaning than just having knowledge of. And then Amos 3, 2, this is my favorite. The Lord says to Israel, you Israel, only have I known of all the families of the earth. Really? You think Yahweh never heard of the Edomites? He never heard of them? That's absurd. He only chose to set his love upon Israel. He knew everybody. But some say, again, that's not fair. Maybe he saw the future righteousness of Israel. Maybe as opposed to the future sinfulness of Edom. Well, let's cue Romans 9 again. 
there was nothing redeemable in Jacob, just as there was nothing redeemable in Esau. So why did God unconditionally choose or elect Jacob and, re- and reject Esau? We heard it in Romans 9. So that his purpose of election might continue. That's why. So his choosing would stand. So he made it clear that it's a choice is his. He's the creator. He can do what he wants. And that it would be all of grace so that we cannot boast and he would receive all of the glory. And in, in what's known as the golden chain of redemption, Paul clearly states in Romans eight twenty eight and following, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, sanctified, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen and amen. That chain cannot be broken by man. So again, what does God as creator require of his image bearers? Well, he requires obedience. He requires holiness, and he requires humility. But because we're totally depraved, we, left to ourselves in our fallen state, are not able to respond appropriately or adequately. We don't even want to in and of ourselves. We don't see the need for reconciliation. So in his mercy, what does the Lord do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the righteous requirements and to pay for the sins of his people. But we still don't respond appropriately or adequately. Now, although we're unable to believe, we're still held responsible to believe. Do you remember the, the uh, command in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found? And we respond with, no one seeks after God? That God through election, his wonderful grace comes and we get Romans 10.20. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Romans 10, 20. Oh, the beauty of God's grace. And then remember when Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And then he responds in John 6, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then earlier in the same chapter, we get this wonderful promise. Jesus says, all that the father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is the wonderful promise of God's grace through unconditional election of his own good pleasure. Amen. And in his infinite mercy and grace, God has unconditionally elected a people whom he would enable to believe and to repent and to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, Jew and Gentile alike. He has granted the faith to believe, and the will to repent. His election comes first, then his drawing, and then belief. If you can quickly turn to Acts 13 in your Bible and go to verse 48. I am going to read what I will cautiously say is probably 90% of American evangelicalism summed up in my butchering of Acts 13.48. I'm going to read it. You read it silently in your Bible. I'm going to read it out loud. This is the way we live, and this is what we're taught in our churches. And as many as were believed were appointed to eternal life. 
Listen to that again. And as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It makes sense, right? You must be born again. Believe and you have eternal life. What does Acts 13.48 really say? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Never saw that before. Well, I did. But, you know, when you see it in in the Bible, you could swear it's the other way around. Regeneration, being born again, precedes, comes before faith in Christ. Being born again means being born from above. And regeneration, you've given a new heart. Your heart of stone is taken out and your heart of flesh is put in. You have the faith to believe. You can see the kingdom of God, John 3. Now you want him. Now you want salvation. So if you are appointed to eternal life, then you believe. We don't have time for this, but in John 10, Jesus talks about the good shepherd and, and, and people aren't believing. And what does he say? You do not believe because you are not my sheep. He's not saying you're not my sheep because you don't believe. That's what we think it means. You are not my sheep. You are not of the elect. That's why you don't believe. And then at the end of John 6, after he says, no man can come to me, he says it again. People heard what he's teaching. They can't believe it. They leave. And he, he pulls his disciples aside. He says, this is why I told you. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's telling them why people are walking away. Brothers and sisters, why do you believe? Because you were appointed. But why were you appointed? Because you were unconditionally elected. Why were you unconditionally elected? Because you were totally depraved. Why were you predestined for salvation? Because you were foreloved. Rejoice in that. You were foreloved. I love him because he first loved me. So where do we go from here? Brothers and sisters in Christ, does God still require obedience, holiness, and humility? Yes, he does. He calls you to these things, and with his Holy Spirit and his continuing grace, he enables actual successes in these areas. Are we perfect now? No. Are we being sanctified? Yes, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look at Ephesians 2.10. We never go to verse 10. Paul says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why we're here. But in him, in Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. When we do sin and when we confess our sins, we have an advocate with God the Father. And his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen? And that is the best news I could possibly have for you today. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I pray that you would apply these truths to our lives, that you would allow us to know you better and our condition better, not for the sake of knowing doctrine and arguing, but for the sake of of worshiping you, for the sake of understanding our condition, for the sake of giving you more glory, knowing your amazing grace that is poured out on those that first hated you. So we thank you. And again, I ask that you would commit to memory the things that we would need in order to live a life that's pleasing to you. Allow us to know our place. You are God and we are not. Amen.